Steer listeners, I'm proud to tell you that this episode of the Leading Steep podcast is sponsored by The Ready State. Stay with me for a short message at the break for a special offer and free trial to access the virtual mobility coach at thereadystate.com. Adventure stories, leadership allegories, and wisdom from the world's great adventure guides. This is Leading Steep. I'm Barry Cruz. I'm an old class five guide in the whitewater world and an executive in the white collar world. I'm still learning to be better at both. So I'm interviewing legendary leaders and adventure guides from around the world to learn what they've learned, to know what they know. I call this guide ethos. If you've committed to be a more connected, courageous leader anywhere, this is the Leading Steep Podcast. It's late afternoon or evening at home, who knows, but Borneo is about two days and three flights away, halfway around the world. So you've got that brain fog, that spacey kind of punch drunk feeling you get when you travel across time zones. You smile at this though, because you've been waiting for this feeling again for what, like two years? Totally worth it. And it'll still be worth it at 4am because your guide for this journey, Susan Myers, is ready to go. The jungle waits for no one, and she's going to introduce you to about 200 of her most colorful, charismatic friends across the country. She speaks the local languages, including these. Now, it might never have occurred to you to go on a birdwatching expedition, but I find it fascinating. And I think you will too after listening to Susan share her experience and knowledge of the natural world. She's written many dozens of papers and articles on ornithology and ecology for respected magazines, scientific journals, and other books. In fact, she actually wrote the book, The Birds of Borneo. I've always said that passion is compelling in any form, and Susan's deep affection for and appreciation of Asia and its wildlife are going to make your journey truly special. I'm very pleased to introduce you to a friend to birders, birds, and the rest of the natural world. This is Susan Myers on Leading Steep. Susan, welcome to the Leading Steep podcast. I'm really pleased that you're here and that you've carved out time for me. Oh, thanks for inviting me, Barry. It's really great to be here. Looking forward to our chat. The same here. I've been so curious about bird watching for so long, for the fact that we have some great birds in our front yard and for the fact that I would love to do a bird watching trip someday. And I went searching for the best bird watching guide I could find, and I found you. Your biography is fascinating. I'd love to know how you got started with guiding bird watching trips and, and how you became a naturalist. Oh, well, thanks for the kind words for starters. Oh, well, as you can tell by my accent, I grew up in Australia. I've been a birder or a naturalist, I should say, really, since I was a little kid. It was just always my passion to be outside exploring nature and, you know, one of my childhood passions was collecting aquatic insects, if you can believe that. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I stole my grandfather's bird book and his old pair of binoculars and I would just run around the bush in the backyard. We lived out in the outer suburbs of Melbourne. I just went from there. I've just always been fascinated by everything in the natural world. And I went to university, studied biology there. That was in the 80s. So I'm giving my age away. <laughs> I didn't really work in the field of biology because jobs were scarce back then. So I went and studied nursing. That didn't really work for me. From there, I went and I lived up in Queensland for a while working in scuba diving industry. 
And then I went and lived in Japan for a few years, came back, worked in the tourism industry, not related with uh, birding. And I was very lucky. Um, a couple of guys asked me to be the manager of a company that they started up that, that never succeeded. I started leading with Victor Emanuel Nature Tours and then for the last 10 years with Wings. I've been guiding for 20 years now. <laughs> Wings Birding Tours Worldwide seems to be one of the, one of the premier companies in, in this space. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that's why you chose to work for them. They have better opportunities or, or good opportunities in their catalog for you? Well, it was a mutual thing, actually. They came to me and asked me because they didn't have anybody really working in Asia, on the Asia tours, Southeast Asia and Japan in particular. And it was a great fit. I've loved working with Wings for the last 10 years now. They're based in Tucson, Arizona, and it's a great company because we're all good friends. So that's a real joy. So childhood nature lover and animal watcher and tidal pool explorer to, uh, <laughs> yeah. to studying it in school as well. And, and was your degree then in, uh, in the sciences as well? Yeah, zoology. So what is your specialization now then? You mentioned Southeast Asia and Japan is kind of your, your territorial specialty. Is there a, a species specialty as well? No, just a general birding. I guess you know that I'm the author of the field guide for the birds of Borneo. So that's a tropical Asian birds are probably, I would say, my specialty. Since childhood, you know, I've got this huge collection of books and my parents who aren't naturalists didn't really know what to do with me. So every birthday and Christmas, they would give me books and I still have them all. And in particular, I was fascinated with the wildlife of Asia for whatever reason, I'm not quite sure. So I started exploring going to Asia as soon as I could afford to um, go there by myself. I've never lost that interest, that passion. It's just a fascinating place. Well, and you lived in Japan for four years as well, and you speak fluent Japanese and Malaysian, is that right? Indonesian. Malaysian and Indonesian are similar, but yeah, I, I guess I can say I speak Malaysian too. But when I go to Malaysia, they all say, oh, you learned to speak in Indonesia, so. <laughs> <laughs> you have an, an Indonesian Malay accent. This is not a problem for me, Susan. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> so of the places that you go, I just looked at your, at your 2021 lineup and you're going to Japan, Borneo, Malaysia, Indonesia, the Philippines all over Southeast Asia and Japan. Do you have a favorite place to go? Do you have a preference for those places? Yeah, I, well, I go to Vietnam and Cambodia as well. Oh, New Guinea, yeah. So anyway, um, yeah, it's mostly the Southeast Asian countries that, that I go to and, and Japan. It's hard to say. It's like when you say, who's your favorite child? <laughs> you know, so you love all these places. I love them all for different reasons. But I guess, yeah, Borneo... In particular, I would say, if pressed, that's my favorite place. What is it about Borneo? It seems still pretty pristine and still pretty wild from what I've seen. Parts of it, yeah. I mean, you know, everywhere you go, there are problems in terms of conservation. It doesn't matter what country you're in. The thing I love about Borneo is just the incredible biodiversity. It's really incredible. When I'm not birding, I'm herping. I don't know. Do you know what herping is? These are rept reptiles, I think. Reptiles and amphibians, yeah. So that's my my other passion. 
Borneo just has everything, you know, from the birds, mammals, reptiles, amphibians, insects, plant life. Every time I go, I've been there, I can't remember how many times I've been to Borneo, 60 times. Almost every day I'll find something new there. You know, you could you could spend a life, well, like my friends who live there, <laughs> you know, every day you can find something new. It's so incredible. Of the countries that you travel to, which peoples do you find the most welcoming? Which Which people do you enjoy the most? Without a doubt, Indonesia. I think people think, oh, Muslim country, you know, it's like, that's not going to be safe. It's very, very safe place. And the, the most hospitable people who, you know, they're so poor, but they'll give you, they'll feed you, they'll welcome you. Just incredibly friendly people. And part of that might be the Muslim culture because it's a part of the Muslim edict, if you like, is that you have to welcome strangers. And I love Indonesia for that reason. The, the people are just so much fun. Talk us through some of your trips. It seems like most of your trips are at least seven days or so, and many of them are, are longer than that. So take us through one of, one of your common tours. I think nearly all of my tours are either two or three weeks because if people are going to travel from either the UK or the US to Asia, it's a long trip. People don't want to go for a short trip. Borneo, perhaps. <laughs> seeing as we're talking about Borneo. Yeah, so we usually meet at the point of departure in country. So I'll meet people in the capital of Sabah, which is the state of Borneo, Malaysian state of Borneo, and that's Kota Kinabalu where we meet. And we usually start off with a little meeting uh, before dinner and I explain various things to people. Then we go have a meal and Usually we kick off the following morning very early. We're talking about a, like a 4 a.m. departure and head, head up into the mountains. One of the things you've got to know about birding is that the mornings are really important. <laughs> that, that old adage is really true, you know, the early, the early bird, bird catches right? the worm. Yeah, so the, the early birder catches the bird. We usually kick off there. One of the nice things is our ground operators will go up early and meet us there and give us breakfast in the field, which is always really fun. So <laughs> it's a nice start to a tour. How many people are usually on your trip? I very rarely take more than eight people, often only six, six to eight people. Great. So you can fit in one van easily and it's a nice exclusive group. Nice small groups. You know, one of my jobs is to make sure that everybody in the group sees the bird, you know, all the birds that we that I track down for people. One of my jobs is to make sure that everybody in the group sees it. And if you've got a too large group, that's a very hard thing to do. So, During your trips, during your two, two or three weeks, are you traveling from location to location or do you have sort of a central central base or a central hub? No, we travel around because if you're looking for the birds in any given country, there's going to be various different habitats that you have to cover. So generally speaking, when I design the um, itineraries, I try to make it that we're staying two to three nights in each place. In some places, that's a bit more difficult. And we call them one night stands. The one night stands are never the most popular. Well, I can imagine that it's nicer to stay two or three days at a place because my least favorite part of traveling is the packing, packing and unpacking, right? So I agree. <laughs> <laughs> as a seasoned traveler, I'm sure you learn how to do it efficiently and almost scientifically, but it's still my least favorite part of traveling. Do you find yourself in your hotel room cursing and why can't I find this? I've only got one suitcase and I can't find it anywhere. 
<laughs> Usually it's more like, how in the hell did I fit all this in this bag <laughs> initially, right? And shopping is usually out of the question because I'm, I'm fully packed. But nevertheless, though, better to stay a few days anyways. So, but you're moving in, on your tours from separate climate to climate or micro environments. environments. Yeah. So getting back to Borneo, yeah, we start off in the mountains because there are a whole bunch of endemic birds, endemic meaning they're only found in that area on the mountains. And then we go down into the, the swamp forest on the rivers. And then we go to the inland tropical rainforest. So we're covering three. When I come to do a tour in, in Borneo with you, how many birds am I going to expect to see? And, and, and I'd love to talk to you about how we document those things as well. On the Borneo tour, we usually see over 200 species, which isn't nearly as high as if you were birding in, say, Colombia, where you would see, I don't know, four or 500 species in a three-week trip. But it's quality, not quantity. <laughs> well, and on, on that note, which of the birds that people are most excited to see in Borneo? There must be some which are obviously more rare than others, so even the ones that delight you to see. One of the fun things in Borneo is there was this old naturalist called Whitehead. His name surname was Whitehead. And there are three endemic birds in the mountains there named after him. So there's Whitehead's Broadbill, Whitehead's Trogon, and Whitehead's Spider Hunter. And if you see all three of them, because they're hard, it's hard to see all three in one trip, you call it the hat trick. <laughs> so if we get the hat trick, we celebrate, you know, so that's pretty exciting. Whitehead hat trick. The whitehead's hat trick. That's always fun. And other groups, pheasants, obviously everybody wants to see the pheasants because they're really glamorous. I think even people who aren't birders know what they are. But the other group that is really exciting are the pitters. They're these small, round, dumpy birds that are live on the ground, they hop on the ground, but they're incredibly colourful, but they're really hard to find. You know, they take skill and patience to find. That's always high on everybody's wish list. Some of the birds that you're seeing are very small, as you mentioned, and some of them are quite large, right? Like your hunting birds? The hornbills probably are another group that are very charismatic. If you're American, you're probably more familiar with toucans. Yeah, sure. Yeah, you, you could say they're a little bit similar in that they have these very big bills and, yeah, charismatic birds. I've never heard a bird described as charismatic, but I can completely, <laughs> completely see it, right? Some more exotic than others. I've said on my of my own leadership style on occasion, like, hey, listen, I should probably dial back the peacock attitude here, you know, right? <laughs> being, a right. Too, being a little too colorful. Bit too showy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Talk to me about your inspiration as a leader or as a guide. I think that as a bird watching guide, you must ha really have to be a teacher, right? A, a teacher and, and very patient with people, and hopefully people are very patient with you. So I imagine, Susan, that there's a lot of leadership and, and compassion and patience and training that goes into, into the work that you do. Yeah, I think it's something that you learn over time, um, especially in the beginning of my career. Maybe I, I'm pretty sure I wasn't so good at that. <laughs> and I've improved with age, hopefully. <laughs> but yeah, like all of us in the professional birding field, we started out as youngsters not spending much time with other humans, more time with the birds and the other animals. So yeah, maybe those sort of interhuman skills, personal skills required a bit of nurturing over years. 
birding requires patience full stop, whether you, you know, you're talking about the birds or other other birders. It should be mutual, like you, as you mentioned, the hopefully the clients are patient with me too because uh, yeah, sometimes it's frustrating when you can't find a bird and show it to people. <laughs> Probably the same skills as, as a fishing guide as well. There are days that you'll go out and be skunked, I'm sure, right? Not see almost anything. Absolutely. That can definitely happen. And then if the weather's inclement, that can be very frustrating, you know. I remember one year when I was leading in Japan, the, the rainy season uh, arrived a month early and we had like five days of rain, nonstop rain. I was just like, oh, God, what are we going to do now? <laughs> but what can you do about that? If everything goes right, it's not really an adventure, I reckon. So one of the things that you mentioned was that you like the people at Wings because there seems to be sort of an esprit de corps or a camaraderie between the guides at Wings. Yeah. One of the things I really like about Wings is that the people in the office, too, are all birders and naturalists and, and travelers. And that really helps that when you're working with people who are like-minded, for sure, and they understand they understand, they have empathy for those rainy days and understand how that all works out, right? So we're birding together in Japan or in Borneo, and I've got a, a record of the, the birds that we're going to try to see. And I'm, how does that look? Do people have a logbook then of, of birds that they're seeing, or is it a digital device that they're checking off? How do, how do, how do folks typically do that? When we're setting the tour up and sending material out to people, we send the bird list. And it's a bound copy of the bird list in taxonomic order, and it's numbered. And one of, the, one of the important parts of the tour is that every evening we do the bird list, usually before dinner. It depends what country you're in, how long that takes, because some countries have more species than others. It's nice that your trips are pretty intimate. Many of the rafting trips that we guide on are going to have 20 people or, you know, sometimes 30 people. And so you have a, sort of an intimacy with the people in your boat typically as a guide, but your trip is pretty intimate for two or three weeks. I can imagine people develop real serious friendships in this. Oh, yeah. I have, personally, I have many, many who I call client friends, people that I got to know on tours um, over the years. I, I like to boast that I could, you know, I've been uh, invited to stay at people's houses in every state in the U.S. <laughs> almost, almost. But yeah, a lot of them have become very close, dear friends. And I'm really grateful for that. As you say, you know, in a small group, you're from early morning before breakfast, the moment you get up to often very late at night when you're looking at night birds, you're with those people all day. can be a bit of a problem when there are people who don't get on well together, which happens. We have to be honest. We have to be honest. I can tell you from my experience that even when I was guiding a class five whitewater trip, I was always more nervous about who was going to get off the bus and into my boat than I was about the whitewater for that day. <laughs> yeah. And for you, you're going to be spending two or three weeks with these people. I well, I mean, you know, as a leader, as you know, you have to have a strong personality and you're always going to have some people who just don't like that. As a female leader, I think sometimes, again, to be honest, some some people just don't like that so much, which makes you wonder. But <laughs> One of the things that I hear from some of my guiding friends are that in the whitewater world, the women often make better guides than the men do. So I think there's there's something to be said for that. I don't know if that's true or not, <laughs> but because uh, I know some fantastic male leaders, uh, of course. So on these trips then, if you're out for two or three weeks, you can't be spending all of your time birding. So do you kind of feather in, so to speak, some of the other sightseeing things to see and so forth? 
Well, you might be surprised. Yeah, we do spend pretty much the whole time burning this. Wow. People are committed to this. It's pretty full on. We're talking about people who are very, very dedicated. You know, I, I know people who've been to almost every country in the world. I know many people who've seen almost every species of bird in the world. So, you know, yeah, a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of money certain people spend on this pastime. This episode of the Leading Steep podcast has just one exclusive sponsor, and it's an easy one for me to tell you about. The Ready State was founded by my friends, former guides and steep leaders themselves, Juliet and Dr. Kelly Starrett. You're going to meet them in a few weeks on this podcast, and you'll be just as enamored with them as I am. Kelly is a world-renowned physical therapist, author, and speaker who's helped athletes with household names from every major sport, including the NFL, NBA, NHL, and Major League Baseball. He's worked with Olympic gold medalists, CrossFit champions, ballet dancers, and the military. You may have seen him on 60 Minutes, Outside Magazine, and in many other outlets, and he's featured in the Tim Ferriss bestsellers, The 4-Hour Body, and Tools of Titans. Kelly's created a program called Virtual Mobility Coach at TheReadyState.com. I'm using it myself to get ready for an ambitious year of Class 5 Whitewater. Now, we won't all have access to Kelly the way elite athletes do, but the Virtual Mobility Coach gives you tailored access to find a solution to what ails you. It walks you step-by-step step through Kelly's proven techniques to relieve pain, improve your range of motion, improve performance, and get in prime shape for whatever challenges you've got ahead. If you're in pain, you can pull up a diagram of the human body, click on what hurts, and from there, get a customized regimen to help find relief. If you are working out or playing a sport, Virtual Mobility Coach offers all sorts of pre- and post-exercise mobility sequences for more than 50 activities. Right now, The Ready State is offering Leading Steep listeners like you a discount. First, you can try the Virtual Mobility Coach risk-free for two weeks without paying a penny. If you decide to continue, you can get 10% off using promo code STEEP10. So again, all you have to do is go to thereadystate.com and when you check out, use the discount code STEEP10 to get 10% off for the life of your membership after your 14-day free trial ends. Thank you for supporting our sponsor, The Ready State. If I were to nail you down and, and, and ask you how many birds would be in your list, how many birds do you think you've seen? You mentioned before about recording the and, and the bird list and everything, and I forgot to mention eBird. So eBird is, is this um, website app where you can, you know, keep a record of everything you've seen over your lifetime. I think I'm, I'm about 4,400 which it's not particularly impressive compared to a lot of people I know because I've spent most of my birding life in Asia. So, Is that uh, Cornell University's website? Is that right? Yes, it is. Yeah. Right. I, I read about that. It looks fantastic. I've been on the site actually even looking. It's amazing. Yeah, it's incredible. Even looking for our local birds. We're having a discussion here in, in the neighborhood about whether or not we have red-shouldered hawks or Cooper's hawks. So I, I think the ladies were probably right. Probably red-shouldered, I'm guessing. Yeah, they're pretty easy to tell apart. Send me a photo and I'll tell you which one it is. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm sure you will. Which is your favorite, perhaps the most rare bird you've seen? And, and perhaps which bird eludes you? Which would you most like to see? 
oh gosh, which is the rarest bird I've seen. There's a big difference between the rarest bird to see and the hardest bird to see, if you get my meaning. Because, um, you know, there are some species that maybe aren't particularly rare, but they're just so hard to see that once you do find it, it's a miracle. <laughs> Probably one of the rarest birds I've ever seen is uh, Bali Minor. It's this beautiful white bird that's only found in this tiny area in the west of Bali, the island in Indonesia. But one of my favourites, which is a hard bird to find, is called the Malaysian Rail Babbler. Again, beautiful little ground-dwelling bird that can be very hard to track down and, and the best way to find it is to recognise the call. The call is so hard, high-pitched that a lot of people can't even hear it. So that's always been a favourite. I've seen it many times, but every time I see it, it's just a thrill and to be able to show it to clients is even more exciting. That's always fun. And that's because you know that sound, you've recognised that, that bird's unique sound. Yeah, I would say, like most of my colleagues, the the way mostly that we find birds is by hearing them first. Mm. Speaking of which, one of the things that that's probably changed in the birding world, I imagine, in the 20 years that you've been guiding has been the technology that you use, the equipment that you use for both probably hearing and seeing birds. And so I wonder, Susan, do you shoot still photos or videos and do you have audio equipment that you use then to record sounds and go back to those things? Yeah, we carry, most of us who, who work in this field, we carry a little um, sound recorder. When I first started off, I had I had a reel-to-reel cassette tape, a tape deck that was like the size of a MacBook, <laughs> only four times as thick, and I would carry that around my shoulder with a great big microphone. And, you know, it's like I got a permanent shoulder injury from that. But nowadays, I carry this tiny little Olympus digital recorder with a little um, microphone about the size of my thumb, and it's just as good. How about camera equipment and, and field glasses and video equipment? Oh, you'd be amazed at the amount of equipment we have to carry. Well, yes, binoculars, of course. Then when we're leading, we always have to carry scopes. So it's a scope and a tripod. That's really important to have. And then we have the sound recording equipment. We have to carry laser pointers which are really useful for getting people onto the birds to show them. We don't shine it on the bird itself, so don't be alarmed. You shine it near it and say, it's just above there and, you know, loads of other equipment, you know, the cameras, <laughs> everything. So the most important thing for people who want to come on a birding tour is to have a good pair of binoculars. Very occasionally we've had people come on tours with cheap pair of binoculars and it's a bit crazy because you're spending a lot of money on this tour but you're not spending money on the equipment you need to enjoy the trip. That's, uh, I can imagine. No, that's, that, that's got to be worth the investment. And then there, there are a couple of really concerning stories that I'd read in the last year or so. One was really actually several stories that I'd read. One was that apparently in the fall of 2020 that hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of migratory birds were dying in the American Southwest and no one really had an answer as to why that was happening. I don't know if you'd read about that or if you've seen other related issues like this. It's definitely happening in Australia. There's demonstrable decline in the, what we call the bush birds. The reasons are multiple, you know, feral animals, weather, climate change. Yeah, I'd read about that, that even feral cats, right? Feral domestic cats yep. are causing a massive decline in the number of wild bird species there, right? 
Oh, yeah, they've been causing, been having a negative impact on birds and particularly mammals even more so for decades, well, since European settlement. Well, this is why I think that what you do is so important is, as you mentioned, introducing people to the natural world, introducing them to rare and interesting birds, even domestically. I think this is so important to give people an appreciation for that. I think I'd read an article that said that the number of birds has declined by about a third in the last 50 years in the United States or so. It's shocking. Yeah, it is. It's very distressing. One of the big problems in the U.S. I know about is um, lights and windows, these lit up buildings stay lit up all night long. And I know there's some sort of movement to try to get people to turn the lights off in their offices. So birds are just colliding with windows because they're curious about the lights or chasing bugs or something. Yep. They're attracted to the lights or reflections or, yeah. I kind of wondered if this wasn't a proverbial canary in the coal mine in some way. Oh yeah. I'm sure it's an indicator of things to come, the the sixth extinction as it's called. What are your clients like and where do most folks come from? Well, we're a US-based company, so most of our clients are uh, from America. But we have a sister company in the UK called Sunbird. So I, in particular, because I lead in uh, Asia, which is halfway between the US and the UK, I usually have clients that are, you know, half of them are from the UK and half of them from the US. Susan, I'd love to hear any of your favorite stories from birding or any anything that stands out as a favorite event that's happened on some of your trips. Oh, well, it's, it's always an adventure. One time in Indonesia where we were in a place called Kazaranga National Park, which is over in the northeast, you have to travel in jeeps in the national parks there. And to the driver and a ranger who was carrying this very old-looking rifle. And this national park's famous for the rhinoceroses. And we were out of the vehicle looking at a bird. And all of a sudden, we looked up and these two rhinoceroses were charging us down the road. And the guys jumped out of the jeep and started waving their arms around and shouting and screaming. And the rhinos are blind as bats. They can't they can't see. And at the very last minute, they just like veered off. But the guy had his gun ready to not shoot the rhino, but to shoot it off to frighten it. And we were joking that he must have been so relieved because, you know, in India, if you anything like that happens, you have to spend the next week filling out paperwork. <laughs> <So> <laughs> that was funny. Uh, then another time... Uh, we were out birding in uh, in Indonesia and one of my clients had sat down to have a rest and a monkey came up and took the glasses off her face. <laughs> we had to spend the next <laughs> hour trying to get her glasses back with this monkey trying, <laughs> putting the glasses on its head and that was... <laughs> <laughs> you eat pretty well on these trips and you stay stay at pretty nice places then? It varies. The standards of the places, we we stay where we need to stay to see the birds. Some places are really simple. Some places are, we don't do the five-star thing, you know, never in your room long enough. But we stay at some very nice places in some places. But one of the joys of traveling in Asia is the food. (laughs) Every country has a different cuisine and it's always good. You got favorite places in Japan because I went with my daughter for the first time two years ago and we had a great time. We were just in Tokyo and Kamakura and some some of the local places there, but I am dying to go back. We loved it. Kamakura is a lovely place, isn't it? Mm, amazing. Favorite places, Hokkaido, 
just a great place any time of year. Summer is really delightful, just so lush and the wildflowers. But my favourite place is an island that probably hardly anybody's ever heard of called Amamioshima. Yeah, that's down in the south. The Japanese call it the Galapagos of Japan. It's got a whole bunch of really interesting animals there. I feel like it's as Japan might have been 100 years ago in terms of just the laid-back atmosphere and down-to-earth. I just really like it there a lot. I love the old places, so that sounds really appealing. It sounds kind of pristine and unspoiled in some way. Yeah, it really is. There's a huge amount of forest cover there still, loads of uh, wildlife and beautiful beaches, nice and subtropical climate. It's just delightful. Susan, as an amateur birder, as a, a, a neighborhood bird watcher, what tips have you got for me or for other amateurs who might want to get into bird watching and, and might want to start documenting the species that we're seeing? Probably the most important thing is don't skimp on the binoculars. <laughs> get a good pair of field glasses, right? Get a good pair of field glasses, yeah. You see people with these horrible binoculars. and it's, The analogy is you wouldn't go snorkeling without a mask. You don't go birding without binoculars. And what do you recommend? Is there a brand or is there a style of magnification that you recommend for bird watching? Well, the usual choice is 8x32 or 8x42 binoculars. Either of those is excellent choice. Most serious birders will have either Zeiss, Leica or Swarovski binoculars, those three brands. And, you know, you're looking at a big investment, like $2,000, but They'll last you a lifetime. You should never need to replace them. I have a nice pair of Nikon glasses, and they're, they're, they're pretty good, but, you know, mostly for sports. I was just going to say, if you, if you don't want to spend that much money, think about, like, $800 on a pair of Nikon binoculars. They make some excellent binoculars, and there are a couple of other brands. So I would probably recommend the Nikons for people who don't want to spend $2,000. <laughs> the other thing is um, just give it time, get a good field guide, give it time, get out there. Practice makes perfect. The more you're out there, the better you'll get to know the birds and just learn the different group. Be like, I can't identify this bird down to species immediately, but at least you can make a start by identifying that it's a sparrow or type of raptor. All right, here's a fun question. So most of our listeners are in the United States, and I love my listeners from around the world. Of course, I'm looking forward to interviewing wonderful and exotic folks like you from around the world. But, but in the United States, give us a challenge. Give us a, give us a couple of birds to go seek that would be maybe difficult for us to spot, Susan. In what part of the U.S.? That's a good question. All right, let's call it the Western. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, because it depends on where you are. All right, let's call it the Western Western United States then. I'm in Northern California. You're in, in the Pacific Northwest. So w w let's call it Western United States. Give us a challenge. Oh, okay. Well, how about waxwings, cedar waxwings? One of my favorite birds around here that a lot of people just don't even notice, but they are just beautiful birds. They look like they're made out of porcelain to me. I was lucky enough to find a flock of them the other day feeding on these little purple beauty berries and I spent about an hour photographing them. I would think that if you're a beginner birder, that would, that would be a nice challenge to go out and find them. One of the best ways to find them is, again, to hear them, the call, which might be hard for some people to pick up. You have to be alert to them. But also to find some uh, berries, trees with berries on them. They love berries. 
That's a great challenge. You shared with me before before our conversation a, a link, a couple of links to, I think, eBirds and to also some bird sounds. So I'll put those in the show notes so people can go find those and we can look up a waxwing. I think uh, this is one of the joys in life people might be missing. We hear birds all the time. We might even see them flying around at the corners of our eyes. Even in our front yard, we have some really pretty birds. Yeah, I mean, one of, one of the fun things to do for me is to go out with uh, beginner birders and and just stand there and say, there's a such and such and a such and such. And they'll, they'll be, how do you know that? Oh, I just, I know bird languages. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. Well, they say that humans remember five things plus or minus two. So for me, it's usually three things. And so if you're talking about seeing, <laughs> if you're talking about seeing 200 species of birds in Borneo, I mean, that's, you're not going to remember everything. Yeah, that you've never seen before. So yeah, just patience, I think, patience, practice, and binoculars. <laughs> for here in North America, are there particular birds that, that, that you look out for when you're here? You, you're, you spend much of your time in, in, in Asia, of course, but are there things that you really look for in the United States that, that please you to get the chance to see? Oh, yes, everywhere. I mean, that's the great thing about birds, natural history in general. I always say that one of the great things, the blessings of being a naturalist is you will never be bored. Not in your whole life will you ever be bored. It doesn't matter where you are, there'll be something, some sort of critter that is going to give you hours of fascination, you know, uh, and keep you busy. So, yeah, I mean, you know, like many people, uh, COVID has shut me down uh, haven't led a tour in a year now. It's a year since I got back from India. Susan, so for the fact that you haven't been able to work in quite a while, you haven't been able to guide trips, what are you spending time on right now? Yeah, I'm working on two books mostly. I'm working on my photography as well, but my, my main projects are the at the moment are two books. I'm doing a, a photographic guide to the birds of Borneo, I'm working on that with Carlos, a Spanish uh, leader a colleague of mine, and we're doing that for Helm, which is a big British company that works mostly with birding field guides. They're very well regarded. And I'm also doing a, a personal project where I'm doing the etymology of bird names, common bird names, which has been absolutely fascinating for me personally, and I'm really looking forward to getting that out. been working on that pretty fanatically, <laughs> I have to say. This sounds like an amazing book because bird names are, are, are fascinating. There's so many interesting names. Tell me a story that would surprise us about bird names. Yeah, so I was just working on um, one entry yesterday, the budgerigar. There are all sorts of theories about where that word came from. It was first mentioned by John Gould, a very famous ornithologist from the 1800s, where he mentioned uh, what he called it the scallop-breasted parrot. <laughs> or something like that. But he also mentioned in the text that the Aborigines called it this uh, weird spelling of butchery char or something like that. And then there were all sorts of theories about whether this was correct. And turns out the word is from, um, I think it's Wurundjeri tribe in um, the Sydney region who called it Gujiriga. Gujarigar. I'm probably mispronouncing that, butchering it. Aboriginal languages are difficult, but it means good food. <laughs> but nobody really knows what that refers to. Was it because the budgerigars were a tasty treat or was it because the budgerigars would take the Aborigines, indicate where good food was? Because 
budgerigars follow the the water and and seeding where um, the pickings are good. You know, some of these bird names will never really know exactly what they mean or where they came from. It's like being a detective trying to figure out. Hopefully, uh, people will enjoy it. Susan, it was a real pleasure to talk with you, and I am fascinated by your work and by the fact that that you guide these trips around Southeast Asia in particular, but around the world. I think it sounds like an amazing life. It is, and I can't wait to get back to it. I miss it a lot. I miss uh, the clients that I, I take out and show birds. I really miss showing people the birds. I miss my friends in Asia, who I have many of now, and I miss the birds. I feel like there's a lot of talk about how COVID's been good for the environment, and I absolutely, I disagree with that. I'm sorry. One of the really important parts of my job and my colleagues' jobs is taking people to, to show them the birds in different parts of the world, not only to raise awareness of those birds, but one of the other important, really important things we do is we contribute to local economies. In many places, we work very closely with local people, tribes people in some areas and very poor communities. By working with these people and contributing money to the local economies, we're helping conserve the birds because if people don't have enough to eat, they turn to poaching for food and for selling birds and other animals. And so I feel very strongly that we help with conservation of a lot of these species. And I'm looking forward to getting back out there. Well, I love your work and I really admire you for what you do and for your knowledge and skill and the fact that you teach so many people about all these things. And I have really enjoyed this conversation, Susan. Thank you so much. Yeah, so have I. Thanks very much, Barry. It's been a pleasure. I admire people who find a passion and specialize in some way as Susan has. I really appreciate that she shares this passion with a lucky group of bird watchers and adventure seekers who commit to seeing these things with her. Like many people in the adventure tourism industry, Susan has had a very difficult year, torn from her vocation, from her income, and even from her family in Australia. Susan has a crowdfund site that I will link to in the show notes. This will help her write her fascinating book on the entomology of bird names. I'm looking forward to birding one day with Susan as Lucky Wings guests have for many years. To learn more about this company, visit wingsbirds.com. They're one of the world's most reputable firms in this space with an incredible catalog of offerings and a roster of guides like Susan. I'm again so humbled and grateful for all your feedback in this first month of the show. I'd be grateful if you subscribe, download all the episodes, and leave a review on your podcast app. Apple Podcasts has the greatest impact for us. Please reach out with your ideas. It's barry at leadingsteep.com or find our Facebook conversation group, Leading Steep Fireside. Thank you once again to the Ready State for gracious sponsorship. As I've always said, my boat of choice for hundreds of Class 5 runs over many years has been SOTAR. It was the state-of-the-art raft then, and it's still today. I work with the superstars at usehatch.fm, and I use squadcast.fm for remote interviews. This outro was recorded and edited on Audacity. Thank you so much for listening to the Leading Steep podcast. I'm Barry Cruz, flying this whole thing on a wing and a prayer. Music